Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, May 22nd. In today's news, more evidence emerges to show why COVID-19 is so much worse than the flu. Young adults are increasingly affected by the Kawasaki-like syndrome linked to the contagion. And local governments are filling the void on contact tracing that's been left by lackluster federal and state effort. But first, the big idea. The coronavirus primarily spreads from person to person and not easily from a contaminated surface. That is the takeaway from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which quietly updated its website without telling anyone. The revised guidance now states in headline size type that the virus spreads easily between people. It also notes that the virus, which causes the disease COVID-19, is spreading very easily and sustainably between people. The CDC made another key change to its website, clarifying what sources are not major risks. Under a new heading, the virus does not spread easily in other ways, the agency explains that touching contaminated objects or surfaces does not appear to be a significant mode of transmission. The same is true, according to the CDC, for exposure to infected animals. CDC spokeswoman Kristen Nordland told us last night that the revisions were the product of an internal review. The CDC website notes that the virus travels through the droplets a person produces when talking or coughing. An individual doesn't need to feel sick or show symptoms to spread the submicroscopic virus. Close contact means within about six feet, the distance at which a sneeze flings heavy droplets. Example after example have shown the microbe's affinity for density. This virus is spread so easily in nursing homes, prisons, cruise ships, and meatpacking plants, places where many people are living or working in close proximity. A recent CDC report described how a choir practice in Washington state in March became a super spreader event when one sick person infected as many as 52 others by singing. Vince Munster, a virologist at the Rocky Mountain Labs in Montana, explains that direct contact with people has the highest likelihood by far of getting you infected. Being close to an infected person rather than accepting a newspaper or a FedEx guy dropping off a box. Vince and his colleagues showed in lab experiments that the virus remained potentially viable on cardboard for up to 24 hours and on plastic and metal surfaces for up to three days. But he emphasizes that the virus typically degrades within hours when outside of a host. This change to the CDC website, without any announcement or explanation, is deeply concerning to Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the Columbia University School of Public Health. She tells us that a persistent problem in this pandemic has been the lack of clear messaging from government leadership, and this is another unfortunate example of that trend. It could even have a detrimental effect on hand hygiene, she worries, and encourage complacency about physical distancing or other measures. Angela says the new CDC language will not alter her habits, and it probably shouldn't alter yours. She said she's still going to wash her hands after handling packages and wipe down shared surfaces with household disinfectant. If people find comfort in quarantining their mail or wiping down plastic packaging from the grocery store with disinfectant, she says there's no harm in doing it. She adds, just don't wipe down food with disinfectant. And also, don't drink bleach. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end another hellish week in America. Number one, 
researchers who have examined the lungs of patients killed by COVID-19 have found evidence that it attacks the lining of blood vessels there. That's a critical difference from the lungs of people who die of the flu. Critical parts of the lungs of patients infected by the coronavirus also suffered many microscopic blood clots and appeared to respond to the attack by growing tiny new blood vessels. The observations in autopsied lungs buttress reports from frontline physicians who are treating COVID patients. Doctors have described widespread damage to blood vessels in the presence of blood clots that would never normally be expected in a respiratory disease. Steve Mentzner, a professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School and part of the team that detailed their findings in these autopsies in an article for the New England Journal of Medicine, explains that what's different about COVID is the lungs don't get stiff or injured or destroyed before there's hypoxia. Hypoxia is the medical term for oxygen deprivation. For whatever reason, there is a vascular phase to this coronavirus, in addition to the damage more commonly associated with viral diseases like the flu. Number two, recent public health warnings about a severe and puzzling inflammatory syndrome linked to COVID-19 have focused on children. We've talked about it here. But some doctors say they're also seeing the illness more and more, similar to Kawasaki disease, in young adults. A 20-year-old is being treated for the condition in San Diego. A 25-year-old has been diagnosed at Northwell Health's Long Island Jewish Medical Center. And several patients in their early 20s are hospitalized right now with the syndrome at NYU in New York City. Jen Leiter, a pediatric infectious disease doctor at NYU, says younger children with the condition seem to have symptoms that look more like traditional Kawasaki, which is characterized by inflammation of the blood vessels. But teens and young adults have more of an overwhelming response involving the heart and multiple organs. In other words, the older ones have had a more severe course. Jane Burns, a physician who runs the Kawasaki Disease Research Center at the University of California in San Diego, worries that this condition may be going undiagnosed or underdiagnosed in adults. The challenge there is that a lot of doctors who treat adults have never seen Kawasaki disease because it's a disease of children. Moreover, it's trickier to get a good look at the heart of an adult because their chest walls are so thick and ultrasounds are more difficult to interpret than in a child. The presentation of this new illness is very different from what doctors were seeing in kids with COVID-19 who showed up at emergency rooms during the first wave of the sickness back in March and April. Back then, many pediatric patients who had COVID and then developed Kawasaki had pre-existing conditions. They had active infections and they were struggling to breathe. The kids that are coming in now are almost entirely previously healthy children and young adults who've suddenly developed fevers, abdominal pain, and or nausea and vomiting, as well as rashes. All can be signs of more serious problems. And here's what's wild. Many of these young patients flooding ERs have antibodies to the coronavirus in their system. What this suggests is that they may have actually been infected with the coronavirus several weeks ago, and then the condition may be some kind of delayed immune system response that we don't understand what's triggering it, but it happens several weeks after they recovered from the coronavirus without showing symptoms or appeared to recover. 
While the overall number of COVID patients has dropped off sharply in New York City and other early hotspots, the number of children and young adults with these inflammatory conditions continues to spike. And this is alarming a lot of physicians. As of this week, more than 20 states have now reported cases, with the total number estimated to be several hundred. And doctors explain that the distinction between a child and a young adult is a legal one rather than a biological one. Here in America, 18th birthdays are so often marked as a milestone in our lives, the moment when people gain privileges like the right to vote or buy a house or get married. But changes in the human body occur more on a continuum, with certain stages of life, such as puberty, involving more rapid changes than others. People in their 20s are at their physiological peak in terms of lung capacity, reproductive systems, and their physical strength. So in this way, people in their 20s may be physically more similar to children than to people who are in their 30s, which is when we start to experience the slow and gradual declines of aging that eventually end our always temporary stay on this planet. Many viruses, including chickenpox and measles, those are the classic examples, appear very differently in children than adults. And amazingly, it's really not understood why exactly that is. The cause of Kawasaki has long been a mystery, and the same is true of the inflammatory syndrome linked to COVID. But doctors say they suspect that some people are born with a genetic predisposition for an overactive immune response to the coronavirus, which is then what triggers the Kawasaki-like syndrome. The New York State Health Department is conducting genetic tests of patients' DNA to try getting to the bottom of whether there's a common link among the children who have developed this condition. And physicians want parents who are listening to know, if you suspect your child has this condition, please seek an urgent medical evaluation. Number three, as states start to emerge from the strict shutdowns imposed as part of the effort to slow the spread, they are scrambling to hire tens of thousands of people to trace the path of the deadly infection. Notifying those who have been exposed and persuading them to isolate themselves and get tested has been a vital part of curbing the pandemic in countries around the world that have done it right, including South Korea and Germany. Local leaders in Maryland have been accusing the state government of moving far too slowly to hire contact tracers. Filling the gap for now are people like Carrie Moran, who is part of a small army of school nurses that have been deployed by the Anne Arundel County government. Some of their targets don't return calls. Some say they can't afford to stay home from work or they're reluctant to give information for their contacts. Others have no idea when or where they may have contracted the virus, making it harder to determine who they might have infected. Karen Carnes, the supervisor of the county's epidemiology program, said people have abruptly hung up on her contact tracers, then some have called back to apologize. She said she understands that it sometimes takes time for people to process the fact that they're infected and what that might mean for them and their loved ones. According to a recent study, one person with the coronavirus can, on average, infect two or three other people, each of whom is then likely to infect two or three other people. That means through 10 iterations, one positive case can turn into more than 59,000 infections. That comes from a study by Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, which says that the United States needs a large-scale effort of about 100,000 contact tracers to identify all the coronavirus cases and trace all of their close contacts. A spokesman for Maryland Governor Larry Hogan says the state has hired 650 contact tracers and they will be fully operational as of next week. 
joining nearly 800 locally hired contact tracers spread throughout the state. In Virginia, they're in the process of expanding their statewide tracing force from 300 to 1,300. In D.C., the city has hired 130 contact tracers. The mayor said last night that the new hire should finish training by June 1st. Anne Arundel, for those who don't know the D.C. region, is a largely suburban county of more than half a million on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. They're already paying almost 100 school nurses and others to do this arduous work. The team's mission is a mix of detective work and social work, along with ferreting out who may have been exposed. Contact tracers have found themselves consoling the grief-stricken and locating resources for families who are in desperate need of food, shelter, diapers, formula, or medical assistance. Contact tracing for Anne Arundel's first known case, a woman in her 70s who was in town to visit relatives from Montana, centered on her family members. The trail in other cases has led to a party attended by an infected person, a military base, and a doctor's office. Carrie says it's nearly impossible to pinpoint where an infected person was exposed unless it's traced back to a family member or coworker. But still, they try. One of the team's most challenging cases originated in a house divided into four apartments. Sixteen people lived in the house after a man in his 40s died and posthumously tested positive for the coronavirus. Thirteen other occupants in the house from the ages of 8 to 70 tested positive as well. The grieving relatives were reluctant to provide any information to the contact tracers. Others in the home, many of whom spoke only Spanish, expressed distrust of government. They're afraid the Trump administration will try to deport them. On the corner of Carrie's desk in her office in Anne Arundel is a black plastic file holder that her team has dubbed the happy bin. It is the home for the closed cases, ones in which the patient has become healthy and their contacts have all been notified. They all get excited when they can put one of those files into the happy bin, but dozens more yellow folders remain in Carrie's pile. And the one on top of the stack in her office yesterday belonged to a man who's been infected, who's in his early 30s. Hopefully it and others can get to the happy bin sooner than later. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, May 22nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. We'll be off for Memorial Day. Have a safe holiday weekend, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>